0: Two pretty long Psalms. And then I'm going to admittedly go off on a tangent. (laughs) So we'll see what the Lord has for us tonight. Psalm 68. This psalm contains prayer, praise, thanksgiving, history, and imprecation. It mentions God in several ways using several different names. And just keep track as we go through the psalm Yahweh, God or Elohim, Lord in Adonai in verse 11, Almighty in verse 14, Lord God in verse 18. God the Lord in verse 20, and King in verse 24. So it's just, it's just full of all the different names of God, the different attributes and characteristics of God. It coincides with 2 Samuel 6 and 7, and it's a victory psalm celebrating God's conquest for the nation Israel and his work to establish a place of worship on Mount Zion. So it's a praise, it's an exaltation, it's a prayer, it's a thanksgiving, and it's a, and it's a specific time in the nation of Israel where they were lifting up praises to the Lord. And it speaks of some history too. So we'll jump right in, verses 1 through 4. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, Let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. By his name Yah and rejoice before him. So we see in in these verses the expression of praise and rejoicing for God's faithfulness to his people. And we see on the other side of the wicked have that don't have that relationship with the Lord. And you know, as his people, we should rejoice. We should rejoice every day throughout the day because we are counted amongst those who have a relationship with the living God, with the creator, as we prayed before, with the creator of the universe. And as we have time of of prayer, corporate prayer, on the first Wednesday of each month we come in, we get together, it's, it's a privilege and an honor that those outside of a relationship with God don't have. You know it says in the Bible that 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 your sins your iniquities have kept you from have kept God from you he can't hear your prayers. So those outside those who are not forgiven of their sins because they have not trusted in the finished work of Jesus their prayers are hindered. But we have that special place and we should be rejoicing in that. Notice the name of the God name of God Yah, in verse 4. Yah. It's a shortened form of Yahweh. In Exodus three thirteen and 14, it says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When God says I am, he's speaking his name, his covenant name. In the Hebrew language, four letters, Y-H-W-H, loosely translated that we've we've heard Jehovah and we hear Yahweh. We really... Yahweh is probably a little bit better because the, there is no J in the Hebrew language, so we pronounce it Yahweh. It's used in this shortened form of Yah only three other times in the Scriptures. Isaiah 12.2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. In Isaiah 26.4 six four. It says, Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. And then in Isaiah 38, 11, it says, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. So we see this word, this name for God used several times in the Scriptures. And it's also used, if you... If, you're, if you think about it as you go through the scriptures, as within the names of certain people in the scriptures, and when you embed God's name within another word or the name of someone else, it's called a theophory. a theophary, we've heard of a theophany, Where we where it's a it's an appearance of God in a physical form. We've heard of a Christophany, which is the appearance of Jesus Christ before he was born in Bethlehem. But this is a Theophany, which is the embedding of the name of God. We're going to have a test after this, the embedding of the name of God into a person's name. Now think about this, Abijah, Abijah, the name. Yahweh is my father. Hezekiah, you hear the Yah at the end, Yahweh has strengthened. Jehoshaphat, Yahweh is judge. Josiah, supported of Yahweh. Nehemiah, Yah comforts. Uriah, my light is Yahweh. Zechariah, Yahweh remembers. You know, such meaning, that they gave names back then. Unlike a lot of times, we, just, we, give, we either give family names carried down from generation to generation or just the popular name that's, that's out today. But back then, a lot of people were named with something that had to do with God. And Yehoshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation, and that's where we get Joshua And Jesus, Yehoshua, and the intimacy of those names, embedding God's name within your name, so that every time you introduce yourself to somebody, you're you're mentioning God. You know, every time you sign sign your checkbook, you're mentioning God. You know, every time, think about all of the different times where your name comes up God, 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 God. How awesome! That would be if we if we would do that, if we would embed God's name, do a theophory, more more common in this day and age. But we don't. And then back to the psalm in verses five and six, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. God's care now for the least among us, for the lonely, for those who don't have a family, for those who's, whose family maybe have shunned them. You know, I, I, I say it often, you are my family, you are closer to me than my, my natural family for the most part. And God, it says here, God sets the solitary in families. How awesome is that? He, he's so intimate with our situation. He knows what we need. And then he puts those things around us. You know, what a, what a great family that we have here in the body of Christ. God has set us in a family. So if you're fatherless or a widow or a widower, or just lonely or in solitude or looking for a friend or, or, or need that companionship. God has set you in a place within the family of God. And he knows you. Our church family can be even closer than our natural family many times. Then, going forward in verses 7 through 18, it says, O oh God, when you went out before your people, you, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance. When it was weary, your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountain of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is, the Lord is among them as in Sinai, the holy, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led the captivity captive. You have received gifts among men even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. These verses, full of the expressions of God's protection and provision for his people. He confirms his blessings through the provision of the ground as well as protection from their enemies. And he does the same for us. He provides. God is our provider. God is our protection. It's his presence that surrounds us, that we sense, that brings us peace and comfort. And he causes those who don't have a relationship with him to be jealous because we have that relationship with God. How many times, if we trust in the Lord with all our heart through even difficult times, especially difficult times, how much does the world look at us and see the peace that we have and say, I don't know how you do that. In the midst of what you're going through, I don't know how you have that peace. And you're able to say, well, I trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. The, those outside of the relationship with God are jealous of what we have, of that relationship. Verse 18 it says, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. You, you may, that may seem familiar to you. In the New Testament, Paul quotes this in Ephesians 4.8. He's describing Jesus' victory over sin, his ascension into heaven, and restoring the relationship between God and his people. Captivity captive. We were once captive to our sinful life. We were once in chains, bound up in sin. And we are now free in Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Those old things, that that captivity that we had in our old life is no longer there. We are now free in Christ. So that restoring of the relationship and then distributing spiritual gifts to his people. Gifts from among men. We each have gifts that are distributed by God to us to be used for his glory, to be used among the body of Christ. And even in some instances outside of of the church walls, Think of the, those who have the... We all have the ministry of reconciliation. We all have that ministry to go to others and to tell them about Jesus. But those who are specially gifted as evangelists, outside of, of the ministries that go on within the church building. So those gifts, all of those gifts that, that God has given to us, and then those, even those natural gifts that we have, we know, are all from God. Then in verses 19 through 23, said, "Blessed says, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong, belongs escape from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. Victory. Victory over our enemies, God promises. And he's speaking specifically to the nation of Israel there whose enemies were surrounding them and think about today you know we prayed for the peace of Jerusalem tonight think about that region of the world all of the enemies of Israel that surround them and God promises victory he's delivered throughout history and he will continue to deliver and that last great victory Will be God's victory. So it's those are the promises that we have in those verses. Then in verses twenty-four to thirty-one, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beasts of of the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver." Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Now speaking, probably the procession that he's speaking of is the procession when the Ark of the Covenant was returned back to its rightful place in Jerusalem. A jubilant celebration. The Ark that represented the presence, the very presence of God. Being returned back to its rightful place. All of Israel joined in that celebration. Now, and if we think about it symbolically in our lives, the presence of the Lord, the presence of God in our lives, the mere fact that we have that access to Him, the mere fact that He speaks to us through His Word should cause us to rejoice in jubilant celebration. So I love this symbolism also, as well as the practical, historical application of the psalms. Then in 32 through 35, Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old, indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel and his strength is in the clouds. Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. And the psalm ends here with praise. We learned when we were studying Hebrews 3 that the builder of the house has more honor than the house. It says here, you are more awesome than your holy places. You know, this church would be just a social club if not for the presence of God. It's all about Jesus. He is is greater than anything that we do in here, than any of the activities, than this building. He is greater than all of it. So if it weren't for him, we would just be doing this in vain. God is more awesome than his holy places. And we should never give the glory to man when God deserves the glory. And it's God who does the work. We're just instruments of, of, uh, of his grace to be used by him, to bring him more, even more glory. So that's Psalm 68. Uh, Psalm 69. As opposed to the rejoicing and the jubilance and the... And, the, and the, uh, the, the tone of the last psalm, this is more of a psalm of desperation. This is really, this is a psalm of just, David is experiencing really distress at the time. His language is raw. It's emotional. And you know, I think it's good. It's good that we see that, that we see a man of God in, in such a desperate state, certainly not wishing it, On him, but God used it because we may tend to think that our faith is weak, you know, when when we're in those stressful situations, or that God has forsaken us when we're in a hopeless situation in our lives. David shows us it's okay to feel that way, but it should always lead us back to God. Those things, those Those circumstances in our life should always be used to lead us back to God. It also makes reference that many commentators see as messianic in nature, and we'll we'll go through that. Much of this psalm is quoted in the New Testament, and it refers to Jesus. So beginning in verses 1 and 2. To the chief musician set to the lilies... A psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Simple prayer. Simple prayer. Save me. (laughs) I'm sinking. Save me, God. I I can't get a footing. Save me. I feel like I'm being, being... Buried by my troubles. Save, that Hebrew word for save is yasha. It means to deliver, to deliver from troubles. But the usage means ample space. Now think about it. In our vernacular, we say when we're in a, we're in a difficult situation, that we say we're in a tight spot, right? Or we're in a bind to describe difficulties. This describes ample space. This describes liberty, deliverance. So think about the freedom we have just to, just to move around as opposed to the, the narrowness of our, of our distress. So yasha, save. Save me, O oh God. And then I think of quicksand when I think of verse 2. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. David's referring here to being hated by others and fearing for his life. Now, certainly, you know the historical references here we probably can't relate exactly to, but certainly there are times in our life where we, people, we feel that people are, are coming against us. Many times it's because of our relationship to the Lord. Sometimes it's because of our own stupidity, but many times it's because of our relationship with the Lord. People just sometimes... Hate us. And David here was was crying out. Verses 3 and 4. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are the mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing. I still must restore it. So David is feeling here the pressure. Of the hatred of the world. We're going to put up a slide here, uh, John 15, hopefully. If the world hated Jesus, know that the world will hate us also. John 15, verses 18 through 25 says if the world hates you you know that it hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love its own but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you remember the word that i said to you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you if you if they kept my word they would keep yours also But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and have also hated me and my Father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Quoted here from Psalm 69. Speaking of Jesus. Speaking of Jesus. And speaking of us. As his representatives, as his disciples, as followers of Christ, we shouldn't think it strange that people may come against us also as they came against him. Then back to Psalm 69. O God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Let, those, let not those who wait for you, o, God, o, Lord, o Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake, I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers. And an alien to my mother's children. Think about those verses. Verse six let not let not those who wait on you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Does our sin bring shame upon Jesus Christ? Think about it. Think about those who you may be witnessing to. Think about your family and friends who aren't who are not saved. Think about them as you, in your sin, continue to walk in your sin. Do you blaspheme the name of God? Just as Christians who fall into sin become an example to the world of hypocrisy, hypocrisy, David was feeling responsible for being a bad witness also. How many people don't come to the Lord because of the hypocrisy of believers? How many people in our sphere of influence do not come to the Lord because of our, because of the way that we live, our lifestyle? Think about that. Now, here I go on a tangent, Not, not completely. Hey, Pat, can you put up that first slide there? Yeah. Anybody know this book, this little book, In His Steps? Yeah. Anybody hear of WWJD? What Would Jesus Do? Yeah, you've heard that, right? That's where it came from. It came from this little book. This book is about a fictional church, small church, and a pastor who got a vision to do something that was going to change their church and in by turn change the community and hopefully change the world. WWJD. I'm going, to, I'm going to read and I'm going to put up some excerpts from the book because I think it's important. What do we do? How do we live our lives Do we live our lives that represent Christ accurately? Do we think before we do? What would Jesus do? Would Jesus read this? Would Jesus go here? Would Jesus speak these words? I'm guilty. You don't have to raise your hands. I'll raise mine. I don't do that all the time. What would Jesus do? So the pastor of this little church, gets a vision from from the Lord because of something that occurred that he didn't handle quite the right way. I'm not going to give it all away, but what he says here to his congregation, what I'm going to propose now, this is on a Sunday from the pulpit, what I'm going to propose now is something which ought not to appear unusual or at all impossible of execution, yet I'm aware that it will be so regarded by a large number, perhaps of the members of this church. But in order that we may have a thorough understanding of what we are considering, I will put my proposition very plainly, perhaps bluntly. I want volunteers from the first church, that was the name of the church, who pledge themselves earnestly and honestly for an entire year, not to do anything without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? And after asking that question, each one will follow Jesus as exactly as he knows how, no matter what the result may be. I will, of course, include myself in this company of volunteers and shall take for granted that my church here will not be surprised at my future conduct as based upon the standard of action, and will not oppose whatever is done if they think Christ would do it. Have I made my meaning clear? At the close of the service, I want all those members who are willing to join such a company to remain, and we will talk over the details of the plan. Our motto will be, what would Jesus do? Our aim will be to act just as he would if he was in our places, regardless of the immediate results. In other words, we propose to follow Jesus' steps as closely and as literally as we believe he taught his disciples to do. And then he speaks, sometime in the future, he speaks again to his congregation. And he says, what would Jesus do? Is that not what the disciple ought to do? Is he not commanded to follow in his steps? How much is the Christianity of the age suffering for him? Is it denying itself at the cost of ease, comfort, luxury, elegance of living? What does the age need more than personal sacrifice? Is it true that Christian disciples today in most of our churches are living soft, easy, selfish lives? very far from any sacrifice that can be called sacrifice? And then he asks again, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Do we bring reproach to the name of Christ? Let not, let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel, in verse 6 of Psalm 69. Imagine tripping somebody up because of, our, of the way we act so that they don't come to a relationship with the Lord. Verses 9 through 12. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, David writes, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me. I am the song of the drunkards. David, again, is expressing the hatred that comes upon him because he was zealous for the things of God, but the people wouldn't listen. And we can relate. We can relate. See, it's the opposite of not doing what would Jesus do. When we do what Jesus would do and we get hated because of it, what the author of that book and what that minister was saying, do what you know Jesus would do regardless of the results, regardless of the consequences. David is juxtaposing here following God and then suffering the consequences of following God, are we prepared to sacrifice? Are we prepared to suffer the consequences of living a life sold out to Jesus? Or do we stay in our safe places and are well-liked among those outside? Sackcloth that David is speaking of represents mourning. David is in grief grief over the deeds of the people. And Jesus had this same attitude. Pat, can you put up that next set of verses? John 2. And he found in the temple, remember, Jesus felt grief over the deeds of the people in John 2:14 through 17 and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business when he had made a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured the changers' monies poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables and he said to those who sold doves take these things away do not make my father's house a house of merchandise then his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house has eaten me up. Quoted here from Psalm 69. He is despised and rejected by men. Well, that's the next set of verses, Isaiah 53. But think about it. Jesus Christ had zeal for the house of God. David had zeal for the house of God, for the things of God. It says in in the scriptures, David was a man after God's own heart. We should be counted among those who are after God's heart, have a zeal for the things of God, regardless, regardless of the circumstances. And then in verses 13 through 20, continuing in Psalm 69, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies and do not hide your face from your servant. For I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I look for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. So, David, you know, he knows where to go in his time of need. He goes to the Lord. He goes to the Lord. We go to the Lord in our time of need. And sure, the people around us should come around and bring comfort and, 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 try, to, and try to help us in our time of need. No question. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. It's supposed to mourn with those who mourn, the Bible says, and rejoice with those who rejoice. It's a, it's a, it's a family. It's a, it's a, it's a body. That works together. But certainly the Lord is the one we go to when we're in in desperate desperate times. They also give me gall for my food, verse 21. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, reminiscent of Jesus when he was on the cross. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. This darkness that comes over the eyes. It's a spiritual stupor that people get in. That an attitude of deadness towards spiritual things. Don't ever get there. Don't ever get so comfortable in your life that you're spiritually dead. That that your eyes are darkened. That you can't see what God is trying to do in your life. And we can become that way. We need to... We need to remain alive to spiritual things. Attentive to what God is doing in our life. Verses 24 through 26. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. So here, David is speaking of the misunderstanding that the world has toward believers who suffer. In other words, how many times people who don't understand our relationship with the Lord will say, well, if your God was so good, then why are you going through this? You know, if your God was so good, why are you suffering? Why are you sick? You know, they will ridicule our relationship with the Lord. But God allows those things. Pat, I think we have Isaiah 53 next, right? Listen, if God allowed this to happen to his son, then we shouldn't think it's strange if we go through a few bumps in the road. Isaiah 53. Verses 3 through 10, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a slam to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Think you're suffering, Christian? Don't think it's strange. And if the outside world ridicules you for being a Christian and going through difficult times... What you can say is, I'm not suffering anything compared to what my Savior suffered for me. Not even close. Not even close. Back to Psalm 69. And iniquity, add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and be, not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God in your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Again, God's care for the least among us of which we can count ourselves many times, poor in spirit, poor financially. God cares. God cares. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. We prayed for the peace of Jerusalem. We know that God will set up his kingdom. And we know that we will rule and reign with Jesus in that millennial time. It's, it ends with, with hope and with promise. And this psalm, although a psalm of desperation, shows us where to turn in our time of need and shows us that God is always faithful and His promises are always true. And as we've studied many times in the psalms, no matter what we're going through, remain steadfast in our trust and in our faith and we will be rewarded for that faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace.